The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Avery Schmitz, intern at Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for March 4th, 2023. This week, the Biden-Harris administration released its new national cybersecurity strategy, which proposes recommendations to address emerging challenges in cyberspace. Preparing to face these challenges, cybersecurity experts have reconfigured their strategic outlooks on the basis of wargaming. For today's archive episode, I chose an interview from December 7th, 2019, in which Susan Hennessy sat down with John Watts and J.D. Work to lift the curtain on these intricacies of strategic policymaking. In the episode, they discussed the value of creative problem solving in cyber policy, future cybersecurity challenges, and more. Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 7th, 2019. Wargaming has long been a staple of military strategizing, but how do we plan for the future in cyberspace, a realm where governments do not hold the monopoly on capabilities? A new report from the Atlantic Council argues that, quote, describing the evolution of cyber capabilities and strategic competition require envisioning multiple futures, and sets out to do exactly that. This week, Lawfare's Susan Hennessy sat down with John Watts, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcross Center for Strategy and Security, and J.D. Work, the Bren Chair for Cyber Conflict and Security at the Marine Corps University, who are authors of Alternate Cybersecurity Futures, along with Nina Collars, Ben Jensen, and Chris White. They discussed the behind the scenes of strategic policy planning, the value of creativity, and what scenarios emerge when you ask cybersecurity experts to predict the future. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 482, Cybersecurity Futures. All right, good morning. We are all here in the Jungle Studio on a dreary December, freezing DC morning. I have John Watts and JD Work here with me to talk about their paper on cyber futures. So, John, I think a lot of people don't really understand the work of cyber policy. And one of the things that's really interesting about this paper is I think it gives a little bit of insight into the policy process. Um, So kind of set the scene for us. What was the problem here? And how exactly does a paper like this 
come into being? Uh, great question. So there's a couple of elements to this. So the cyber policy realm generally, and, and JD can talk to this better than, than I can, um, is it's an interesting field for a number of reasons. There's obviously the technical aspects as the reach across every facet of our lives. Um, but what I find really fascinating about it is because it's so new, it's kind of developing and evolving and iterating on a daily basis um, or a weekly basis. We're seeing new international norms kind of being created in real time, which you know I find really fascinating. But one of the issues is, you know, a lot of it is still kind of theoretical. There's still a lot of ideas of, you know, what happens in a in a general war when cyber tools get applied, and and the best minds like you know JD, based on their experience and what they've seen to date, can can make some predictions on where it might go. But we really don't know until it's in the heat of battle. I mean, when you look at say, you know, submarines before World War One, there is ideas of how they might be applied, but it's not until you actually get into general conflict where you can really understand. And and so the idea of this paper um, and the idea of alternate futures is because we don't necessarily know you know, the linear path that we're going to go to. And, and the reality is there's no real linear path anyway uh, in futures work. Because we don't know, we tend to get locked into thinking that things will continue along a certain path that we're already on or that um, that'll evolve in, in the ways that we think they, they might. Uh, we don't sometimes consider uh, wild cards and, and um, different trajectories. So the idea of futures work is uh, to look at some of the alternate ways it might go, um, look at some of the factors that, that you know, may not seem significant now, but could have a big impact under certain circumstances and to um, explore different realms. So the idea of this paper at its heart is to really challenge people to think a little bit outside of the current lanes of where they think cyber policy is and where they think it's going um, to kind of explore some of the the plausible, the possible, even if not the probable uh, ways in which cyber conflict might develop. And what's sort of the time frame that futures work operates on, right? Are you thinking 20 years from now? Are you thinking 50 years from now? You know, whenever you're sort of trying to wrap your mind around where things might be at some future fixed point, how far away? So this is always a really fascinating question to me in the futures work, right? Because, you know, almost every event you go to, they say, oh, 15 or 20 years. And usually that's because it kind of, it's beyond the, the current budgeting process. And, and there's an idea of what we might build from a military point of view in that time frame. But, you, you know, it's not locked in, it's not classified. So it kind of feels like a safe zone. I've done war games, um, you know, on, say, the future of a regular warfare. And we did these in, you know, 2011, I think. And we came up with all these ideas of how people might use, you know, remote sensors and PlayStation controllers to to have, you know, homemade, hand-built kind of, you know, death robots. And we saw within six months that turning up in Libya, where guys were attaching rocket launchers to ATVs and using an Xbox controller to control it. We saw in the early days of Syria, the Kurds had these homemade tanks with remote weapon stations. So we always say, oh, it's 5, 10, 15, 20 years out and this kind of jetsony. But the reality is it often happens a lot quicker and a lot faster than we intend. That being said, you know, we talk about like, you know, the, the cutting edge military technology and the changes we have. We're still rolling around in Abrams tanks that came into service the year I was born. And I'm not that young anymore. And we're still going to drive them for another five or 10 years. They're going to be 50 years old by the time they leave service. Similarly, a lot of the airframes, you know, um, there was a, a project that, that going on about vertical lift, um, you know, for the Marines and the Army. They're talking about, you know, a new platform to replace the existing one where the, the current platform will go out of service 100 years from when the last platform came into service. So for all this cutting edge new technology, we're talking about two airframes, two pieces of metal 
over a hundred years. Um, so you have to be really careful with this sort of stuff. On, on the one hand, you got to calibrate it to a point where you push the boundaries a little bit. People get outside their current biases. And if you say, oh, this is what's going to happen next week or next year, the biases kick in and say, oh, no, I'll just be like it is this week. But you have to be careful not going too far out and getting too jetsony because then it gets too abstract. The conversation you know, loses some grounding. And the reality is that these things actually happen a lot quicker than you intend. Okay, so JD, the job here is to loosely predict the future. How do you guys go about doing this? So there's actually a very long tradition of futures analytic methodologies. Um, there's a whole uh, toolkit from which we can draw. Uh, in this case, we began with an ideation session. Uh, we brought in about uh, 50 folks uh, from across industry, from across government, from different strategic and policy roles, uh, folks that had had experience both with future operating concepts uh, as well as some of the implementation aspects of these things. And we, we began to work through a series of trends and drivers uh, things we expected in the technology landscape to change, uh, and to the idea of times and timeline and horizon. Part of that, uh, you know, we're driven by this concept of Moore's law, whether it is real, whether it continues. You know, that's an entire debate into itself. But versus these very long lead budget cycles we were talking about, so we've got some concepts around uh, how we change, how society changes, uh, how some of the technology pieces fit together, uh, and then we really brought in the the larger uh, questions of the intended objective, um, what type of future future are we looking to scope? Because um, the idea here is not to pick a single best course of action or a single best outcome. Uh, we know that it's not possible. It's not linear. Uh, you're looking across that cone of probability to identify the things that are uh, will allow decision makers to future-proof their strategies. So across the most number of these futures, what are the best options that we can see? And then, of course, um, if we are looking for those best options, what are those pitfalls? What are those minefields? What are those things that um, would create a less than optimal outcome? Uh, and how do we foresee those? So you get a group of smart, knowledgeable people in a room and you get them to start discussing trends. Are you putting specific scenarios on the table? Are you getting them to sort of describe the current state of play to make the predictions, right? How do you break out of the cycle of just a bunch of people sort of talking about their biases and about sort of their the expertise based on what they already know and, and really move them into a conversation that that starts to be operating, you know, John, on the timeline that, you, right. that you're talking about? So um, there's a kind of terminology for what you're saying in, in the wargaming realm, which is bog sat, a bunch of guys standing around a table. Um, and, and there's, you know, a real danger of doing that. I mean, you can have good conversations when you have good people, but you certainly need more structure than that. So this wasn't a war game per se, but, but you still need structure in the way that you're discussing it. So, you know, first of all, there's a lot of social engineering that goes into these sort of activities in terms of picking the right people, picking the different perspectives. I mean, if you bring in a bunch of people who are going to agree on the same topic or, or have the same biases, you're not going to get anything valuable out of it. Um, the other aspect is, you know, part of, doing this sort of activities is about tapping into kind of the, the unknown knowns, those things that people kind of subconsciously understand or aware of or think about every day, but maybe don't articulate, right? And if I go to someone and say, tell me what the future of cyber is, I'll probably get a pretty vanilla, vague boilerplate answer, right? But if I say, 
you know, here's a situation where X happens and these are the considerations and these are the factors. What do you do next? Then it sharpens a focus and it taps down into that, into that subconscious knowledge. When you do that with a bunch of smart, interesting people where that person's answer can trigger someone else's response, can trigger someone else's response, then you start getting interesting things happening. So the first part of it is getting the right group of people. And we, we put a lot of work into identifying diverse perspectives, people that aren't going to necessarily get along or, or share the same view of the world. Um, we came up with with a bunch of themes um, that we had running into the the day that we thought was things that we wanted to focus on or thought were kind of the key issues as we see them today, and we kind of presented to them everyone. We started the day with with a number of briefs. People like uh, August Cole, who's a good friend, uh, Dr. Ben Jensen um, from Marine Corps University, came in and gave kind of uh, state of play discussion. So everyone kind of had you know, a base of knowledge or, or, or thought about some of the themes going on. Uh, and then we structured into several days. So the, the, the larger group got split into smaller groups that had facilitated conversations. And we asked a number of very specific questions. So in that, we, I think the first session we brainstormed, you know, identify in isolation the current trends in the, in, in the cyber policy realm. What are the things that you're seeing? Let's just brainstorm as many as we can. Um, and then from that, we looked at, you know, kind of the, the current forces that are driving those trends, what the divergent trends might be, um, and then uh, kind of, you know, the impact analysis of what does that mean? What are the implications of those trends going forward? And that was in the morning. After that, we had a facilitated conversation where we kind of bounce those ideas off where someone might say, I think this is really important. And someone else can say, yeah, it's not really that important because of these reasons. And someone said, well, actually that used to be the case, but now things are different. And that's that, you know, that, that iteration that you have in the conversation where when it's well facilitated, you, you have an ideation of ideas, you have critiquing those ideas and then either validation or, or iteration and, and um, building upon them uh, into the next uh, thing. So we had a, had a facilitated conversation and after the, uh, in the afternoon, we had a kind of a wild card thing where we built scenarios based on some of that morning conversation of, of what happens next, what are the wild ideas. Uh, and then the, the kind of the, the, the last phase of all this was after the day was, was done, we had this group of us, so JD, me, Nina, um, Ben Jensen, Brandon Valiano, um, a bunch of, of, you know, the facilitators and guys were involved in, in the activity and we brainstormed what the key themes or ideas or things we heard, the divergent ideas we had were. And we brainstormed, I think, about 14 or 15 that we thought were really key issues that we, we had heard during the day uh, that were worthwhile. Uh, and then from that, we kind of down-selected and kind of collated some together and, and, and came up with composite themes or ideas that collected some together. And that really, was really the basis for which we then asked JD and Nina and Chris to kind of go away and be creative and draw out those into sort of fully fleshed scenarios. So it's actually quite a long process and methodology that gets to, hey, let's write a scenario. So you facilitate this interesting methodologically structured conversation and then people like you are essentially observing and learning from this and pulling out trends that are are interesting to you in order to start doing the more kind of specific, uh, you know, futures and scenarios that we actually see come out in this paper. It's, I think it's fascinating just sort of how much process goes into, you know, this you know relatively brief paper that comes out at the end, you know, sort of talking about the substance and these meetings are typically done under 
sort of Chatham House rules where you can't say who who precisely said what or who was even there. But at a at a general level, what were the substantive trends? What were the sort of conversations that you heard people talking about and, and sort of the the shared assumptions and and the maybe surprising friction points that uh, that that conversation started to spark. So you talked about these trends that you, that you distilled down. What was the conversation like? Sure. And the divergence was actually very much a surprise. Uh, if, if we accept the maximum of the futures already here, it's not evenly distributed. Um, we, we run into folks that have encountered different pieces of those distributed futures. And everyone has a different perspective based on that collision. And from those collisions, you have a pretty interesting set of, uh, of different uh, lines of thought. So some of the areas where we, we had a lot of collisions, uh, and a, therefore a lot of interesting discussion uh, and things that informed our scenarios, uh, were around this idea of persistent engagement. Uh, the new um, U.S. Cyber Command vision for uh, how... So unpack that a little bit, sort of what is meant by persistent engagement. Sure. Um, U.S. Cyber Command has articulated a new vision by which it will conduct operations, uh, engage in partnerships, and uh, contest and challenge adversary hostile action against uh, our uh, our networks, our allies' networks, our critical infrastructure. Um, if you look back on the past uh, several years, we've had some, uh, you know, very seriously hard challenges uh, caused by adversary presence, caused by disruptive and destructive acts, and caused by uh, sustained uh, industrial espionage, economic espionage. Um, General Alexander has cited this as the largest transfer of wealth in human history. If you look at the uh, traditional national security strategy space, we have struggled to articulate a means to compete in that area below the threshold of armed conflict. Uh, and there's uh, there have been ex- uh, longstanding discussions about whether um, we can deter adversary action in the space, whether deterrence even works in cyberspace. Uh, and to the extent that uh, we are looking to craft a new way forward, uh, there are folks on different portions of a uh, intellectual spectrum around these ideas. And particularly where folks have had different equities, uh, if they're a private sector player, what it means to think about adversary presence on their networks versus what it means to um, have potential U.S. government or um, allied nation uh, support or um, presence to contest on those networks. Uh, Some of the uh, difficult challenges around uh, the threat evolution and the pace of that evolution. Uh, and of course, what it means across this changing technology landscape, not just talking about servers and uh, endpoints, but as we move into um, a, a much more cloud-oriented environment, a much more personally intimate device uh, environment where we have personal area networks of wearable devices, implanted devices, um, incredibly uh, interconnected technologies as um, the internet has begun to avert more uh, aggressively. If I can just jump on something for a minute. One of the, one of the things that I thought was really interesting and I've heard a lot of discussion about since, and there's just there's just a lot of discussion in DC on this, was you know this idea of cyber deterrence and whether you can or you can't. And I think one of the points that JD made in his scenario was this idea uh, that you know there's there's a, there's an inherent contradiction in the deterrent aspects of cyber, you know, which is to say that deterrence only works you know, if you either utilize a tool, which in which case it's then out in the wild and, and your adversaries can have it as well. And so then it kind of loses its deterrence ability. Or if, if you keep it secret, so people don't know you have it, but if, if it's secret and no one knows you have it, then it's not really going to deter anyone, right? So, I, I'm, you know, JD, maybe if you can unpack that a little bit, because I think that's something that, that a lot of people are talking about. I think you tackled really well in this paper and, and I think kind of needs greater discussion or thought. 
Sure. Uh, so the scenario that wound up in the final report uh, was actually a combination of two different uh, primary lines of thinking. So the first was uh, this idea of uh, zwei Kampf below the belt. Uh, so uh, the classic Clausewitzian struggle between uh, uh, different uh, contestants in the space of politics by other means. And then also the idea of no bots land, um, where we have iterated the the speed of capabilities evolution, that is uh, the ability to employ new offensive techniques and against new attack surfaces um, faster than uh, we can account for within our human planning processes and within our traditional mechanisms of we use to generate and control national power. Um, it's it's a simply a different type of war fighting in this environment. And how does war fighting change in this environment? Across that, we then ask the hard question of um, what does it mean to do persistent engagement against these types of uh, concerns at the depth of time we've seen from the long war. So we have the Cold War, we have the, the global war on terrorism, you know, now this, this multi-decade uh, engagement across uh, a large uh, spectrum of the world. We are essentially looking at this open-ended engagement in the cyber domain across a number of um, near-peer and other adversaries' um, threat concerns. So where we are crafting a strategy for that depth of time what does it mean for our capabilities? What does it mean to manage those capabilities? Um, we have a pervasive vulnerability in the domain that is caused by the complexity, the, um, the interconnected nature of these uh, systems, the rapid pace of change, and the uh, rapid fragmentation of developmental control. It does not appear from our vantage point that, we, that that will change anytime soon because it requires some fundamental re-architecting of those network processes and the value creation mechanisms by which those processes are generated. So if we are going to continue to have this pervasive vulnerability, uh, there will be offensive capabilities to exploit this. The management of those offensive capabilities as a fleet management problem, as an arsenal management problem uh, at the depth of time becomes a very difficult challenge. Um, we've had for the past decade very intense debates around things like vulnerability equities process. That is, if the U.S. government is aware of a specific vulnerability that might have offensive utility, um, how quickly can we disclose that to the private sector to protect those industries versus what is husbanded as an offensive option against our adversaries? How do we balance those competing interests? And then, of course, when we come to not merely having an arsenal on the shelf, but uh, we begin to use these capabilities to contest adversary presence on the network, to deny their ability to interfere with an election, to deny their ability to disrupt power or water in a targeted urban environment. Uh, we cannot permit that vulnerability to be exploited by those adversaries, um, but we have to be very careful about how we employ those offensive capabilities. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got 
a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code 
Lawfare 20. So let's use that as sort of a, a place to talk about the divergence between sort of conventional wisdom and sort of the, the current path and um, the path that futures planning might might lead us down, right? So it's a complex area. That said, you know, to the extent you were surprised by some of these trends, you know, how would you characterize kind of the conventional wisdom, right? Here's on on the, the general thinking over vulnerabilities, equities, in the long term. Here's like the conventional wisdom that we're all just kind of moving towards. How would you characterize that? And how did ultimately the, the conversation and, and sort of the, the, um, the scenario that you developed, which I, I think it, um, reflects a, a, a certainly more sophistication and, uh, and sort of hard questions on it, you know, where do those points start to diverge? So conventional wisdom states the U.S. government and uh, our five vice partners and some of our other allies have the best offensive capabilities in the world. Uh, we have the best cyber forces and that we will continue to do so. Um, obviously, we see a number of near peers chasing very hard to create parity. Um, we see a number of emerging programs coming out. And we're, we see a number of folks coming to the table from very non-traditional places that just had not been a factor previously. In the West, we understand that private sector cyber intelligence capabilities have given us in the public discussion the bulk of what we know about the domain, and it's changing how we understand the domain. Previously, these are things we could have kept secret for years or decades, um, are being known in near real time, often playing out live on Twitter. And that changes the nature of disclosure, it changes the nature of uh, how we understand threats. And of course, there are new players coming into the market. So we have, uh, we looked at some of the emerging market cyber intelligence capabilities that might come to the table, how adversaries may use these, uh, how other players uh, may misinterpret things they see in partial form. Um, that was a bit of a set of surprising findings. Um, we, we call out one example uh, in the scenario um, as, a, as a bit of a vignette where if one assumes that adversaries are seeking to exploit uh, information regarding emerging infectious diseases potentially for for their own uh, attack purposes, uh, if one is watching the adversary attempting to achieve that objective and contest that adversary, um, what does it mean if someone, uh, a third party, detects the activity to watch that and misinterprets that in the first place? Um, so there's a lot of this wilderness of mirrors dynamic that came out. Um, there's a There are a few other things along this where we saw a, a set of surprising questions around what happens when the cabinet is empty. We believe we have these best capabilities, best in class capabilities. We only have so many of them. Our cost basis for acquiring them is much higher than many of our adversaries. Our lead times to acquire these capabilities are longer than we're comfortable with based on legacy acquisition processes, a few other uh, areas of concern. And our talent pool is excellent, but it's restricted in different ways by the nature of the security clearance process, by the nature of our uh, bureaucratic structure. So when we're playing at the depth of the arsenal, how quickly can we refresh a set of capabilities, uh, particularly when we are facing the volume, velocity, and variety of threats that we see coming down the road? And what happens when we reach that moment where that cabinet is empty, we have a crisis, we have multiple concurrent crises, uh, and we don't have an option to give to the decision maker? So I think if I can draw upon kind of a wilder out there. So one of the one of the things you know you asked about you know what are the different ideas that generated they're kind of they're kind of all there all there. But we actually um, those that we didn't generate into full scenarios we put at the back of the report as wild cards. And some of them are the ones that I actually find most fascinating and, and really want to to kind of see expanded. And actually you'll see for anyone who reads the paper, you know we state this is this is a process, it's an ongoing iterative process, and that we encourage people to engage 
intellectually with the material. If you if you don't like the scenario, challenge you know challenge us. Send us your own version of it. And the the wild cards we left in there in part as kind of a challenge to people to say write your own scenario, take this and run. Like develop this out. If you've got an idea around it, come back and tell us about it. Uh, you know and we're hoping to do this event you know regularly and, and publish more versions of it. But I'll give you an example. I mean you know. We are often fairly good at predicting technology and its application, you know, in the broadest sense. What we, we as humans generally are really bad at is understanding cultural and social change over time, right? And particularly values. Peter Singer often talks about, there's a, there's a picture from the, uh, the World Fair uh, in the 50s or 60s where it had this picture of a, a woman in a living room ironing uh, and around her was all this technology with something that looked like a flat screen TV and something that looked like a microwave. And, and the technologies weren't that far off. The one thing it missed was the social change of a woman at home ironing shirts in the middle of the day and not in the workforce. Right, which is far more impactful and far more important, but we miss that. So the technology, we're like, oh, we can apply it this way. It's it's relatively, you know, sterile. It's pretty straightforward. We really miss the messiness of social change. And so one of the, one of my favorite wildcards was around some of the the trends that are, at the moment are kind of edge signals amongst the youth. And I'll give you an example. So. You know, I think today's generation um, are pretty comfortable with teaching themselves skills. And I'm, while I'm not part of that generation, um, I see that bleeding into, into my life. I, I've taught myself most of my home mechanic skills by watching YouTube videos. And I can do virtually anything on my car by finding the right video, watching what it does, and just a basic level of knowledge. And I think, you know, this generation of future generations will be really comfortable with these kind of homemade, do-it-yourself things where they kind of empower themselves to learn and new skills by themselves. So what does that look like in the future, particularly those within, say, the hacker realm or those that are slightly outside the law that like, you know, I'd, I'd heard there was a story down in Florida where the um, uh, the Florida state government was was trying to expedite tax returns by like prepaying something. And, the, and they were actually finding like drug dealers were leaving the streets to go and do identity theft because it was safer. I mean, they don't, they don't sell drugs because they have a, you know, a passionate belief that drugs are important. They do it because they make money. If they're going to make money in a safer way they're going to move to that and so people were actually making money teaching others how to do this identity theft in order to claim you know like pre-tax return receipts it's the same thing if, if someone finds a way of making money online through cybercrime, people will do that and particularly in this sort of generation where it's really normal to to teach yourself a new skill and 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 such but the other one that, that i find fascinating and, and kind of scary is like the the swatting Phenomena, right? So, for those who who aren't familiar with it, this, the idea of swatting is it came out of um, online um, computer competition where kids will be, or kids, you know, of all ages, people of all ages will be playing competitively online, and they'll call up nine one one and say there's a hostage situation at this person's house, so that the, the SWAT team go and knock down the door to disrupt the other person, right? And on one level, it's not really that dissimilar to the old like pizza prank. You know, you call someone's house and send them pizzas they don't want. Like it's, it's effectively just an extension of that, but it's so much more deadly. But this idea of if you're a 12 or 13 year old who's grown up in a culture and environment where that's an acceptable thing to use state violence to disrupt a competitor for what is a fairly petty, insignificant outcome that has resulted in deaths, by the way. There have been several people shot by police in these raids. If you're comfortable leveraging state capabilities, you know, um, violent force to achieve a relatively minor end, what happens when they get to 20 or 30 and they either, you know, wherever, whether they're in government, whether they are, you know, they follow a life of crime, whether they just, you know, really dislike their sports team from across the way and want to disrupt them in some ways. What happens when those cyber skills 
become democratized and dispersed in the general population and people see this as a uh, as a perfectly acceptable normal approach what does that mean that's the social change it doesn't have anything to do with the technology per se but that's going to have a really big impact on the cyber environment and particularly in that kind of persistent conflict in the future so how do you marry that with the sort of practicality of actual scenario planning, right? So um, you want to have been the actor that foresaw a little bit of the future, that recognized the trend early, presumably, so that you can change your behavior and, and do the thing that others wish that they had done earlier. You're describing a trend that is both terrifying and completely plausible. How does that translate into cyber futures? So the, in doing the futures work, there's, there's a couple of different methodologies you can use. The simplest one is to say, okay, what are the trends that are driving this? And, and, and well, so what are the forces that are driving this trend and where does this go in the future? So you, you extrapolate out into the near future. You say, well, at the moment, it's a pretty minor thing. It's only done between a, a small number of people. Um, maybe it just stays there. It's kind of an, an oddball niche issue that comes up once in a while, but really you know, kind of stays below you know, any significant you know, public awareness. And that's a trend that just stays like that. And it's unlikely to stay that way, but, but that's one possible future, right? The alternative is that there is some sort of divergent event where there's a crisis, you know, maybe, you know, a six-year-old dies in a raid or, or a house burns down or something that, that catches the public attention. People get outraged at, and there's a, there's a massive you know, shift by companies and, and such. And you can see that in, you know, environmental issues and, and you know, a whole range of other things. You know, even uh, McDonald's changing their style from containers to cardboard, for instance, right? There can be an issue that suddenly grabs attention and everyone gets behind and, and there's a, a there's a society-wide kind of force and pressure to change um, the conditions. So that's one path where maybe that goes away because society worries about it so much that it kind of gets crushed. There's the other where it becomes completely normalized. Yeah, that might be the growth of esports. It might be um, you know, increasing joblessness that has to do with the economy. It's just completely unrelated, but you suddenly have a large group of, of people who are frustrated and angry. Maybe it, it connects with other forces, such as some of the, the extremism that's coming out of Reddit and 4chan and, and those sort of places that we're seeing with you know, the... the uh, what do they call them, the incel movements and those sorts of things, you know, maybe multiple trends collide. And so, you know, what you do is you break it down into, into its com component parts and see how those different components may uh, continue on in, in its fashion or how they may change over time under what conditions. And then from that, you kind of work back and you say, okay, well, I'm going to see what the worst case scenario is, which is usually in the future's work what you're trying to do because you're trying to shock people into to, to realizing how badly things can go. So you might say, this becomes widespread, you know, hundreds of kids a year die from it. And then you work backwards to say, how do we get here? And that scenario then paints that picture of the, 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 the chain of events, a sequence of events that gets you to that, that end state. And then talk about, you know, what some of those wider implications may be. So, J.D., one trend I was struck by in uh, your specific scenario, which um, I think is uh, maybe less arresting but um, as plausible, um, is sort of this built-in assumption surrounding economic espionage that we essentially fail to deter economic espionage and that this becomes something in which the incentives just drive 
basically all actors to get into this game and the idea that international norms against economic espionage or this ability to be able to create very fine sort of fact distinctions about who's allowed to do what essentially fails. Am I overreading that as sort of a, an assumption and, and, and a trend? And, um, uh, you know, talk about how that sort of that, that strikes me as um, as as both plausible and incredibly radical in terms of the way we think about really serious long term planning. How did you come to that in the scenario and, and how does it play out? Sure. And I, I don't think you're overstating that by any means. I think you've captured that uh, precisely. And it is by no, it is absolutely a radical proposition. Um, it will fundamentally reshape the nature of how we consider alliances between great powers into the next century. The, the basis of this came from some very difficult economic realities in the competitive space where uh, we've previously been within the cyber field uh, focused on China as an economic espionage actor, a few smaller uh, rogue state players uh, seeking military capabilities advantage, seeking to um, acquire uh, intellectual property for uh, duplication and use in their own markets. Uh, as well as export markets. We've seen disruption of the solar industry. We've seen disruption of the uh, wind power industry. We've seen disruption of the nuclear industry. We've seen disruption of chip making and technology as a result of all these things. Uh, we've had DOJ indictments. But they've been focused on what we can traditionally consider those, uh, those adversary actors. We have a very difficult economic reality coming through the terrible 20s and into the 2030s where uh, a number of uh, States with very strong uh, welfare systems, um, very strong socialist models of governance uh, will not be able to afford. They're going to run out of other people's money. When that occurs, where do they look for that money? How do they create new value? Um, and do they in some ways – is that a parasitic process? Collide that with some of the protectionist impulses you see where there is an increasing attempt to target uh, U.S. Silicon Valley entities by other states because they see that that is a source of value. They're doing that through a series of regulatory uh, measures. They're doing that through a series of other objectives for differing moral purposes and differing uh, governance purposes. But at the end of this, we can also see this economic driver. Um, and from this, um, if we look at a future in which the European Union perhaps is not as cohesive as it is today, um, we have Brexit and then we have a series of additional exits all of which get increasingly harder over time. Um, what does it mean for these, uh, for the, the those polities to uh, have this uh, hole in their uh, revenue structure, have this competitive gap caused by uh, some of their working models, caused by the differing nature of their society, but trying to make that up, trying to find a way to um, excel on that. And of course, if those states have offensive cyber programs and if those states have had, uh, as we had in the 18th century, um, 17th century, a differing model of interaction on the economic space, how does that play out in terms of the espionage problem? And that's sort of where we came to. And how different of a conversation do you think you would have had or did have five years ago, right? So if you, I mean, one of the, the challenges here is you're, you're trying to predict things that are sort of fundamentally unknowable sort of the red teaming of it is, okay, take yourself back in time and say, all right, if we'd had this conversation in the past, here's where our assumptions might have been. Here's what we would so have me, gotten Let me wrong. give you a little um, anecdote. I did a, a war game, uh, all kind of form of a war game, a similar kind of ideation activity um, with DOD and DHS and, and others, uh, probably about 2014, I think. 
And like we, we did this, the methodology was kind of like a morphological table where we took like threat actors and, and threat capabilities and we kind of looked where they might intersect and, and try to like generate new ideas of, of what that might look like and, and how, you know, let's say a cartel could use drones or whatever. And again, this is, you know, five years ago and a lot's changed in that amount of time, you know, in, in every facet of life. And in any case, I remember like at the end of it, you know, during the plenary discussion, we said like, you know, what are we missing? And we always do that kind of wild card, like what's the catch-all? What have you heard that, that we, you know, that doesn't fit into the structure of the, of the, the discussion? And someone said, the thing that, that I see as the biggest homeland security threat is lack of critical thinking on social media. And we all went, mm, deep. What does that mean? Don't know. And we moved on, right? But we lacked... I, we, we, there was a there was a signal there and we missed it and that happens in all these things you can't catch everything but there was a signal and we recognized that it was important but we didn't put the the time and the effort into kind of like fleshing it out we certainly didn't have the creativity to think about how that manifests well fast forward a couple of years and we know how that manifests now um right so we, we had the answer we just didn't realize that we had the answer uh and that's why you have to do these things you have to do them continually you have to push the boundaries you have to think about the wild ideas you have to look at some of those those little signals amongst the noise that may not be important um or may not seem important or may seem important but you don't really understand what it means you need to collect all those up and you have to keep churning through different versions of scenarios because the more you think about it the more you expand the more you uh, explore the more potential there is that you get the answer beforehand or prepare for it or understand, uh, you know, when you get to that that future version, uh, what some of the implications might be. And I'll amplify that. Um, we actually at the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative convened about seven years ago to do an earlier version of an alternative futures look. So looking from what we focused on that point to, to, de- uh, to the last effort uh, and today, we, we looked at this concept of uh, differential information flows, variable uh, structures of flow. Uh, we looked at the idea of different loyalties. There, our focus was very much on what it meant for the classic Westphalian state monopoly of violence to be eroded in cyberspace um, and the changing nature of sovereignty in this space where previously, uh, if you take Lawrence Lessig's dictum that code is law, the folks that are writing the code are in Silicon Valley. And traditionally, the folks that therefore write law are considered sovereigns. We have a we have a new set of folks that were focused on uh, bringing norms, bringing the shaping the realities we dealt with in, as part of the international system. Fast forward today, we're looking at folks that have very different loyalties across that system, where the state is actually no longer the core source of their loyalty and identity. Um, and this is our, our colleague uh, Nina uh, did quite a bit of work on this in the scenario she brought in, where suddenly we take those varying loyalties, we take the varying impulses, and we take the curated information flow where we're not necessarily critically evaluating social media, but we're socially evaluating the flow of news and events by based on our peer groups, based on those around us. And we're creating these you know, self-reinforcing clicks, these echo chambers um, that can be manipulated but also are tied to these critical concepts of of tribe. And what does that mean to play out? Um, these are things we previously had not uh, thought about in this this radically emergent version of the, the future we happen to be living in. Uh, and then, of course, when you play this out to the point where the ecosystem of devices you're a part of is more important than your passport, you know, that's a pretty radical future. So, John, what was your big takeaway at the end of this? If there's sort of one thing you want people who read this paper to focus on or or to be thinking about in terms of sort of a a practical shift in thinking, what is it? I think think my broader view or, or desire is I want people to be thinking 
a little bit more widely about issues full stop, whether that be in cyber, whether it be in conflict, whether it be about um, you know, privacy or autonomous cars. I mean, you know, some of this work, you know, uh, JD talked about emergent um, aspects. You know, for me, that's a really important word, right? We, we talk about strategy or planning where we want things to be. We, we do all this work to, to identify trends and, and kind of logically say, you know, extrapolate out this is going to be this way because of this, this, and this. But it rarely plays out that way. There's always, you know, unpredictable uh, dynamics where multiple things collide in a certain way and create this whole new uh, possibility or, or future that we wouldn't have thought about. So I really want people to do more of it. I, I want I want them to read this paper with an open mind, not to kind of think this is us saying this is exactly how the future would be, but but to think about what we're talking about and to, to take the time not just to read it, but to actually think about it and reflect on it and think about and challenge their own views on it. I mean, if they're not being challenged by this, then, then we haven't done our job. Um, and what I hope kind of going forward is that the people engage us with this, right? So as I said, I, we hope to do future versions of this, but but I hope people write their own scenarios. They get inspired by this and some of the other great work that, that the Mill Writers Guild and other people are doing on, on futures that August Cole and, and such are writing on sci-fi. Go and write your own stuff. Go and, go and build your own scenario. Try your hand at it. Send us your ideas. Um, you know, talk to your friends about it, have a group discussion, do like a book club type thing on, on what the future might be. Um, that's really what the purpose of this is. It isn't to say, here's a roadmap of the future that people can just follow along. The whole point is to say, stop looking at the roadmap, think more broadly, challenge all the, the underlying assumptions and be prepared for for whatever may come next. That's what makes us resilient is that preparation for the unknown and, and the unforeseeable. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm hoping to do with this. Come in with an open mind, challenge your own thinking, challenge our thinking, have more discourse about it. We'll have to leave it at that. Uh, John Watson, J.D. Work, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to John Watts and J.D. Work for coming on the show. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. This podcast is edited by Jen Howell, and your audio engineer this week was me, Jacob Schultz. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.